Hi, I'm Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. Thanks for being here. I am with Diane Gross from Cork Wine Bar. I'm so excited that you're on this podcast, Diane, because I feel like I worked on the Hill as you did, and I feel like it's everyone's fantasy to do what you did, but only you did it. You like <laughs> chucked it all, and you're at a wine bar, which, like, what could be better than that? So thank you for being here. It's my pleasure, absolutely. And we're going to talk about some of your background in uh, politics and, and in policy. And Marco Davis, a uh, partner at New Profit, also a veteran of the Obama White House. Um, yep. Really, really glad that you're with us. Glad to be here as well. Very excited. Uh, and my sister, Debbie Shore. Good co-founder of Share Strength. Hi. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being here. Um, so, Diane, let's let's start with you. Um, it really does feel like you're, like, living the dream. Uh, a wine bar, instead of, like, being stuck in the Hart Senate building or the Russell Senate building, was it something when you were on the Hill? Was it in the back of your mind? Was, like, how did it happen? So it was in the back of my mind and in the back of my husband's mind. He always wanted to own a bar. Um, and we I came from going to law school in New York, and every little neighborhood has these little nook restaurants where you go a couple nights a week, and it's great food and a great ambiance and small and intimate. And so we were sort of craving that in our neighborhood, and that was sort of the impetus for starting it. But I was working on the Hill at the time, and... Um, I have to say I was trying to prevent a lot of bad things from happening uh, with my wonderful boss, Barbara Mikulski. Senator Senator from Maryland. Senator from Maryland. And I'd done a couple of stints on the Hill. um, And I loved the work, but uh, it was really draining, you know. And I wanted to do something that sort of fed my soul a little more for the things that I was really interested in, which were wine and food. And my husband and I had started really... uh, exploring wine together as a couple, tasting and, you know, going out on dates where we would taste wine and it really sort of grew from that. And so this sort of seemed like the natural thing to do. Crazy, but natural. And and you kept doing stuff in the community. I mean, that's really, you know, also what your, your place is known for is just like such deep community involvement. Absolutely. And we have a pretty strong political background. So that's the sort of people who've always come to us, um, progressive people from nonprofit world, people in the political world. And, you know, we just started our place to be a gathering place for those folks and folks in our neighborhood. And um, our neighborhood was developing at the time. It was Logan Circle, probably about 12 years ago when we first started thinking about this. Um, It's exploded now. But, you know, back in the day, we were the only dining destination so well what's exciting to me about having the two of you on is I feel like you have both found uh, if not invented non-traditional ways to build community I mean you're both social justice act- activists I put Debbie and I in the same category uh, but Marco Debbie and I are probably a little bit wonkier than somebody <laughs> who has a has a wine bar Marco you were at uh, corporation on national service yep. then the Obama White House, tell us a little bit about your path uh, that led to being a partner at New Profit, which is a kind of a venture philanthropy model of uh, nonprofit work. But you're going to have to, as we get to it, describe what that actually means. Sure, sure. Um, So and and I'm most of my career has really been a nonprofit uh, world career. I've been, as you mentioned, sort of engaged in working communities and, and trying to help build communities working primarily, though not exclusively, with the Latino community and the African American community working with with um low-income families and so on. Um, uh, the bulk of my time was really at what was then called the National Council of La Raza and CLR. That's actually what brought me, not what brought me to D.C., but my first and, gig and here You're from DC. California originally? New York originally. From New York, okay. I'm originally born and raised in New York, but spent six months in California just before okay. coming out it, to D.C. Yeah, before yep. coming back to the East Coast. Okay. Um, and NCLR, incidentally, is now renamed Unidos U.S. Um, they went through a name change last year. And it was there that I really sort of learned about cut my teeth deeply in the nonprofit sector and working with community organizations and so on. And through relationships there, um, and in fact, being just a young person here in D.C., back in the days of our 20s, I met the founder and CEO of now New Profit, a woman named Vanessa Kirsch, yep. um, and we stayed in touch so that when I wrapped up my time uh, in the Obama administration started thinking about coming back to the sector and looking for something new to do, um, we struck up a conversation, and, and one thing led to another. And, and what was your work team. in the Obama White House? Uh, I was at an office, well, for the first year and a half at the Corporation for National Community Service, um, doing large-scale service um, events, so the MLK National Day of Service. Um, I was there the first year that September 11th had been designated a National Day of Service and Remembrance. Um, so work like that, really trying to engage communities at a large scale to, to be involved in volunteering and service. And then from there, I moved over to spend four years at the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for Hispanics, 
So really sharing information with Latino communities throughout the country about um, education and hearing from Latino communities about their experiences with education to help inform policy. And of course, being in that role, I basically heard about anything and everything people were interested in wanting to share with the Obama administration. So you're like a White House liaison in some with ways, the Hispanic yeah. community, information going back and forth. Exactly. Both yeah. ways. Yeah. Yeah. Um, With a focus on education. But like I said, you know, being a conduit was was of highest importance for us. And so it was like really whatever they wanted to talk about, we were happy to help share and, and connect them to the resources or supports they need or to carry their complaints, which happened to, um, <laughs> which we were happy to do. So that must have been a, a kind of a heady time. Yes. As a young man being in the White House, right, working, doing that kind of work. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Something I'll never forget. Did you, did you, was there ever a single day there where you imagined that Obama would be succeeded by President Trump? Was that like, could that ever cross your mind? Yeah, I, I, no, I think we could have thought of many other scenarios. Uh, I probably did think of and try and even plan contingencies for many scenarios, right, but that, that probably wasn't one of them. Yeah. yeah. Margot, I'm, I'm trying to understand, uh, or figure out what a proximity accelerator is, <laughs> which I read about. Sure, sure. Um, so uh, let me see. Um, new Profit, as a venture philanthropy, our whole focus is on scaling up nonprofit organizations. It was created, as I mentioned, by Vanessa Kirsch, based on this idea that nonprofits have real trouble scaling up, right? We, we have nonprofit organizations all over the country that do phenomenal work in local communities. But as soon as they want to take that work to more than one community, as soon as they want to go statewide, it's really, really hard to find the support and the funding that they need. And it's really hard to find anybody even to give them guidance to tell them how you do this, right? Whereas the business sector has an entire infrastructure. You get your angel investors, then you get venture capitalists, then you get private equity, et cetera, right? It's structured to grow companies. Everyone's, every business leader's dream, except maybe at Cork Wine Bar, <laughs> uh, is to become like a Fortune 500 company, right? So you you, you chart a path. Yeah, the structure's there yeah, for to right, grow. Right, the nonprofit right. sector doesn't have that, yeah. right? The other story we tell is the YMCA, the Boys and Girls Club, they're in every community in America, right? They took 100 years to get there, right? Today's solutions, we don't have 100 years to wait. So that was the idea. In, over the course of that work, and New Profit's now 20 years old, um, we started to detect a pattern in that um, the organizations that were scaling, their leaders were not as diverse as they probably should be. They didn't look like America. In fact, that's part of what got me excited about coming to work at New Profit was helping to diversify the leadership at this scaling point. So all of that is to say that the Accelerator is a program we run with a cohort of eight leaders, social entrepreneurs, um, to help them get to the point where they can be great candidates for scaling, right, to grow. The name proximity actually comes from a concept by Brian Stevenson of Just Mercy yeah. and of the new yep. museum and memorial in Alabama, um, uh, where uh, his the, the wisdom, I think, of his grandmother was that you really can't solve the world's problems from a distance. You have to get up close. You have to be proximate to really challenge that. And so our focus on leaders of color is that they have... Uh, greater likelihood, if not, in fact, proximity to the issues that they're working on, and therefore, um, that's some insight and some added value that they bring mm -hmm. to the table. And you know, on the diversity issue, where at Share Strength, we're, um, you know, working really deliberately to, you know, think about diversity and to bring more diversity into the organization. Mm -hmm. I was wondering what you think is at the core of nonprofits, mm -hmm. really at the core of not being able to diversify as quickly and as successfully as they want to. Um, yeah, well, so obviously it's not like a, uh, it's not an easy thing. There's not one solution, but I would because say because a lot want to be right, like yeah, you want to yeah, be exactly, diverse. Exactly. So there's there there yeah. might be you know some reasons why you don't want to diversify your your leadership, right. but assuming that you do, what do right. you think is at the core of why um, it's so hard? Yeah, so I think I'd say the the way I might answer that is like I think the first step, the absolute first component, is having that conversation. Right. I think the challenge is, and this is really not unique in some ways to the nonprofit world. Um, this is like the situation in America, like in for better or worse, it's changing right now. Right. In these last couple of years. But the reality is that even as people are starting to have more conversations about race, ethnicity, about diversity, um, we don't have a common vocabulary. We don't have a common understanding about the issue. And so even when people start the conversation, they sometimes sort of are at cross purposes or there's misunderstanding. But the reality is that more often than not, people are afraid to dive in. People are or afraid, maybe too strong a word, right? But they're uncomfortable. They're it's easier to it. avoid. Yeah. If you, you can avoid it, you yeah. avoid it. Well, yeah. there's yeah. also not the support for it, right? I mean, that was, and I'm 
I love what you were talking about before because I feel like, you know, I came from a nonprofit background before I went on the Hill and then I... In civil rights. Right. right. I was a civil rights lawyer and the folks who work in that community are awesome civil rights lawyers, but nobody's trained to run a business, which is what a nonprofit Mm -hmm. is, right? And so scaling up or leadership models or training, all of that is something that sort of gets pushed behind because nobody's taught anybody how to do that and you sort of get thrown into whatever roles you have, and this, you know, I go back a while from being in the nonprofit world, so I'm sure it's changed, and I hope it has. <laughs> but I think that, you know, what I experienced at that time was just that people weren't given the tools to support. They didn't know how to do it. They wanted to do it, but they didn't know how to do it. Yep. And that's, I think, a fundamental right. problem. The restaurant industry, you know, not so far off. It's it's pretty not diverse. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's diverse in our um, in the community that works in the industry, right? Like we have an incredibly diverse the um, staff. Yeah, the workforce, but right? Not the the leadership. workforce, and um, my husband's African American. I'm a woman, so that's probably an anomaly in a lot of businesses. But you know, there's not a lot of um, uh, chefs of color. There's not a lot of owners of color. Um, or I mean, women are getting more and more into leadership roles now. But traditionally, it's been a very hard profession. And so it is something where people need the tools, the support, the skill, the capital to be able um, to succeed and to make those changes that they probably really fundamentally want to make. But like, well, what like would how, be an example how do you do it? Like a, some of the tools or is it is it too complicated to kind of dive into? Well, I think it, you know, you talk about community and, and one of the things that when my husband Khaled and I started Cork, we tried to do was, you know, have health care, give people some parental leave if they needed it. But those aren't traditional things in a restaurant industry. Right. So some of that stuff with, would make it easier for women to have leadership roles doesn't happen as much. It's happening way more now, um, which is awesome. But you know, traditionally, it hasn't. And so when you look at who's in the room, it takes a while to get into that leadership role, right? So if 20 years ago, we weren't doing it, who's in the leadership roles now? So you have to you know, look at that element as well. Yeah, and something I'd I'd so and that's a really great point you made, Diane. And I think when you think about it, um, as you just said, it's it's already hard enough for a leader of an organization or a restaurant to navigate that, right? In some ways, they feel like they're making it up as they go. A, a really crucial aspect, therefore, of what helps guide people through that um, is frankly like the social capital they have, right? If they can actually network to and have people in their world that they that can give them advice, who have some experience, that have some insight to it, right? And what you have is a phenomenon with leaders of color, with women and so on, where there's, um, and fo- folks from low income backgrounds, they don't have that social capital, right? They don't necessarily have a network of people who've run businesses for profit or nonprofit. They don't necessarily have people who sort of know how to navigate systems or set up healthcare, like you just mentioned, or those complicated things. And so there's a c- critical component. The interesting thing I'd say, because we're on this podcast, is um, when you think about how that social capital happens, um, oftentimes, one of the prime examples people give when you start going back to younger people is those are conversations that people remember hearing at the dinner table, mm-hmm. right? That's when mom and dad would sort of say, here's what, or when friends and family would come to dinner and they talk about my life as an attorney. And then suddenly a young person's like, I wanted to be a lawyer like uncle so-and-so, right? And that's where some of that stuff really mm-hmm. happens. And that's where, you know, and so the, the process of community building um, can also be about helping communities and individuals and families build social capital and make connections that actually benefit them, their families, and really the entire community. I notice also a lot of schools are sort of bringing it into schools at a younger age now, talking about diverse careers, diverse opportunities, um, really sort of letting folks, uh, letting the students understand that there's all these different opportunities out there and giving them a path and the information to connect with people so that they can get more information and follow something. And I think that's also critical because it does happen at the dinner table. If we think back, if I think back to my childhood, the reason I became so involved in social justice was because my parents were, yeah. right? We, and we have the same same background right. with us. And yeah. so that's like where you begin to learn and you either follow the path or you completely rebel. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think my daughter's on the rebellion side, yeah. <laughs> sadly. <laughs> um, but I think that we need to think about other opportunities and schools are a great way to think about that for kids to get that exposure that they may not be getting at their dinner table or may be getting part of at their dinner table, but not more different opportunities or different ideas. Yeah, I do feel like, but it could just be every generation feels this way, so I don't know. It it does feel like kids are 
more intolerant of intolerance mm. than they used to be. <clears throat> At least my daughter, and she's 16 and a half, right. and her friends, and her world is so intolerant of intolerance. And, you know, I don't remember feeling that way. We grew up in a very liberal, you know, active political family and you know, I, I didn't have to buck any system. Neither does my daughter in terms of the way she's growing up. But do we think that things are uh, on the better? Oh, yeah. Well, on, and plus we had no schooling in it. Uh, our generation had no schooling in that whatsoever. We didn't mm-hmm. have classes on diversity and inclusion. Right. We didn't really talk equity, about it. That's true. Uh, which they do in school now. And uh, same with my 13-year-old. I mean, his, his antenna is exquisitely tuned to any type of uh, bias, Anything. hidden bias, um, anything like that. They're very in tune to it. They are, yeah. I think there's two probably factors that that relate to that. And so I don't know if for sure it it actually is more, but it certainly feels like, and and these things are true, different. So that may be why it's happening. One is the population is far more diverse than it ever was. That's right. right. And so as a result, um, whereas in the past, maybe you had one kid in your classroom from X background, that one kid maybe the burden was on them and as a result they didn't maybe necessarily share a whole lot about their culture their experience their religion whatever it was right their sexual orientation now that they're sort of critical mass in sort of all these different populations it's discussable right so i think among young people it's not so unusual it's not completely unknown and therefore there isn't any kind of reaction to it in some ways i think they they start being quote unquote more tolerant really much more accepting embracing and as a result when they hear somebody they're like why are you against that you don't even know about that right the other piece that compounds that, I think, is is technology, right? The idea that information is now so ubiquitous. The fact that any 16-year-old can basically on their phone probably learn about anything <laughs> they hear yes. about or interested in, right? And as a result, it's also the kind of thing where people are actually able to explore their curiosity in... Just have access to everything. Yeah, in yeah, easier ways. I think a lot of kids are growing up self-educated. I mean, they're getting yeah. the basic tools at school, yeah. but in terms of like what they're passionate about, right. they are learning it on their own. But I think you're right. I mean, there's so much more diversity around kids. And I mean, yeah. we're in a city now, so that is one of the reasons. But um, I think that when it's the norm, then when something happens that's not the norm, you're you're like, what the heck is that? Why is that happening? You know. But is that just in like a handful of the major cities, or do we feel like that's? I think it's more often in urban areas. Yeah. I have to be honest. I think it's, it's right spreading, there. and because we're breaking down barriers everywhere, I think that it is true that. People across the country are feeling that way. But I think it's more, I have to say, I would think it's more populated in urban areas because there's so much more diversity and so many more things that you're just living with on a day-to-day basis. I will say, though, that, um, and I think that's this is sort of one of these opportunities I think we haven't yet as a, as a nation, as a society, learned to take advantage of, which is, whereas it's true it's much more common and perhaps much more intense and concentrated in major cities, you do have rural areas that are changing, right? And that's everything from... I'll raise the, the the hot button issue topic, right? Which is immigration that you know, and not recent even, frankly, but but immigration um, that happened in the not too distant past. That now there are small towns that are becoming far more diverse. They're just not sort of on the front page, but they're coming far more diverse based on workforce patterns, right? And you have rural areas that, like I said, smaller towns that are changing, and you have conversations with folks there. And based again, based on proximity to difference, there's a different conversation. Similarly, you actually have also very small communities that we don't know and look at, but this is something I had opportunity to learn about in here when I was in the Obama administration, is that you also have communities who have actually embraced um, refugee populations. And there you have really significant transformations in and your different places you'd never expect. Exactly. Right. Like give us a rural example. Maine. Yeah, rural all Maine. kinds of places. Rural Minnesota. Right. Somalis and yeah. rural Maine. Right. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's and really incredible. And once you start to break down one barrier, the yeah. other barriers are easier. So it should because it's ref- that exposure. I, I don't know. We'd have to look uh, at all the numbers of the election, but I mean, it, you'd think that would be somewhat reflect the, the election we just went through, but it kind of doesn't because yeah. probably because of the geography. Yeah, well, I mean, it's not there were three million was, more popular I know, votes. Exactly for, as I was trying to Clinton, say that. Yeah, so. It's not equally distributed. Yeah. Like it's right, not in every right. small town in America, yeah. right? And so you have. But my point is that's my for me the thing about the opportunity is that you have folks who. So again, because we, uh, for me, it's like we overgeneralize, I think, a little, right? We have, like, it's absolutely true, and it's based on real trends, right? Big cities, but then you have this idea, this real archetypal juxtaposition of big cities, very diverse, and then small towns, not all diverse, and therefore, and all the attendant views, right? But you have small towns that are diverse, 
that are similar to those non-diverse small towns in every way, and except that will somehow grow. That they will, think That will just continue to grow, yeah. right? right. That will and that's something to learn from, I think. And welcome, welcome yeah. other communities exactly. into their community. Yeah. And obviously, you know, it just kind of boils down to, unfortunately, to some of those parts of human nature that we're not so proud about, which is that we, we fear the unknown, right? And that's, you start from that, it's harder to yeah. overcome easily. So Marco, two things for you. One is I wanna um, make sure everybody understands what venture, a venture philanthropy model really is, because it's sure. different than traditional philanthropy. And then second, I was, I'm gonna ask you, after you describe that, to kind of leapfrog over what you do to talk about like what's the what's the actual impact that you and New Profit mm. are having on the people that you're mm. that you're aimed to serve? Sure, sure. All right. So, um, and I kind of alluded to it a, a little while ago. So, venture philanthropy takes its cue from the venture capital fee se segment of the private sector, right? And the way I describe it is, um, uh, a venture capitalist looks for promising companies, studies a company overall invest money in the company and obviously wants to to reap a profit down the line and therefore like contributes beyond their money their own talent and insight to help that company grow right venture capitalists so take a expertise seat. and mentoring exactly. it's not just a financial investment exactly and in fact the venture capitalist often takes a seat on the board of directors when it's a sizable investment right venture philanthropy takes that model mm -hmm. uh, for philanthropy so and new profit does exactly okay. right traditional philanthropy is getting a proposal about a specific program studying the viability or promise of that specific program run by an organization, awarding a, f a grant to it, and then stepping yeah. back and saying, let us know how it goes, report you know, on certain s a schedule. If you succeed, we'll give you more money. If you don't succeed, sorry, we're not going to fund you anymore, but we hope you learn something and we're going to move on, right? New Profit studies the entire, or we invest in, we invest, we even say the word invest, but we give grants. We give grants to organizations, right? So it's not a specific program that we're interested in. We're interested in all aspects of the organization being promising. And that includes the leader, right? Because there's a, there's a human relationship component to it and strong leadership adapts to whatever problems come up. And so we want to know and have confidence that that's an option. We look at the, the program impact for sure, which I'm going to jump to, uh, uh, to to your point in a minute. We also look at things like the scalability of the program, right? Is it affordable? Well, not affordable. Is it economical to grow this significantly? Can you? Is it is it too much cost per per individual person served to be able to grow to serve from 100 people to 10,000, right? If it's just too expensive and no one will ever uh, be able to raise that much money, then we sort of say your model sadly is not going to work. We got to find ways to help um, reduce costs. Um, per person, right? Um, so we do all of those things and we then make an award, a grant. We provide what's called um, unre unrestricted funding, right? Um, we call it build capital, which means again, it's not tagged just to the program. Um, we provide it to them to use however they want and it's short term, it's not forever. It's usually a four, for us it's a four year uh, initial uh, grant. Um, and the idea is to say, spend that on stuff no one else will pay you for. Keep running your tutoring program, keep running your health, your job training, and so on, and use your existing grants for that. Use this funding to get executive coaching. Use this fund to help shape up your development program. Use this fund to explore earned income models, right? Whatever it is that you can do that's unique, that's actually going to help you grow. We also take a seat on the board of directors. That's very different from traditional philanthropy. And the reason being to bring our own expertise to the table as well. Yeah, I, I would imagine, you give them a long leash, it sounds like, yeah, which is exactly. great. But I, st I would imagine, and things have probably changed a lot since you started, that people agree readily to this, and then there's like, right. you know, varying levels of resistance yep. as you intervene yep. with your own strategy, yep. your own advice, your own yep. counsel. So you probably learned how to pick those yeah, exactly. a lot better. Exactly, in fact, again, we use the term from the private sector, it's called diligence, right? We do our due diligence and we study the organization, we have extensive conversations with, with the leader, with some of the senior staff, with the board of directors, we say to them, hey, with this grant comes a seat on the board, which means you're gonna open up the books and let us know. Level of grant? Uh, usually our, our traditional investment is a four-year, $1 million grant, so $250,000 oh, wow. a year for four years up front, right? Not contingent on succeeding every year, but rather saying you can breathe for these four years and know this money's coming. So figure out how to, how you, what do you want to do with it? Well, you know, and as you're talking, I'm, and I've never really thought of it this way, but, you know, at Share Our Strength and Our No Kid Hungry campaign, you know, we don't, I wouldn't call it a venture philanthropy model, but... Uh, I think of it in some similar ways, almost like a general contractor with subcontractors, because mm. we make grants to about 400 organizations, but they're for a very 
they're, they're for a very specific purpose, and we're there with them. So there's quarterly dashboard meetings, mm-hmm. and there's mm-hmm. things that, you know, if, almost the same as if we had a seat on the board in terms yep. of the diligence and the accountability. Yep. And I think the point that Debbie was making is one of the things we found out the hard way, particularly when we first started, is they'll they'll agree to almost anything to right. get the money. <laughs> right. But right. then when they find out that actually we're going to be accountable to these metrics and we're going to be measured and judged and, yeah. you know, future funds could be dependent on that, yeah. um, that becomes a very different thing. We have to talk about it different. I mean, potentially we could be, you know, um, you know, kind of <coughs> ramping up the way we yeah. strike those yeah. relationships. And we've, yeah. we've talked about that. Yeah. I mean, right. we, yeah, for us, that's the diligence part. That's part of that process where we really say to them, like, this is what you're getting to. And, and in fact, before we even... Uh, uh, contribute to you, invest in you, as we call it. We need to know that, like, this is going to work for both of us, right? And so, yeah, you're right. They're often sort of like, yeah, sure, whatever you say. <laughs> but um, then but- the whole model is really how you not only financially fuel them, but also fuel them with this insight and knowledge and support exactly. that makes the financial part work. Exactly, exactly. And, that, and I- that's fundamentally different yeah. than... That's the you know, part we that used to get our grants. Want. It was like, okay, we have to file our quarterly report, right. and it's only this specific project, and you can't spend it on anything else. Right. And if other parts of the organization are flailing or need that support exactly. or need something, and, and there's not the funding where? for it. Leadership Council? I was at the Rights Lawyers or? Committee Lawyers for Committee. Civil Rights, mm-hmm. um, and I was also at the Leadership Conference on Civil both. Rights, okay. both of those, for okay. a number of years. That are grant-dependent Very much so, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay, before I come back to Diane, tell us about <laughs> the um, second part. Yeah, the, the, just the impact, and maybe what's one of your, you know, the success stories you're most excited about. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, uh, okay. So, um, the impact part is that. So, uh, to, to to follow this thread, the they'd like to maybe say differently. And I don't mean to critique traditional philanthropy, but the but the reality is the way it often plays out is that they do as much careful scrutiny and assessment as they can on the front end. But frankly, once they make the grant, it's a bit of a roll of the dice, right? Because whether the organization succeeds or not is all completely on the organization. The philanthropy has no role, right? Our approach and our model is, is, as Diane was mentioning, is that we're right there with them, sort of in the trenches, as they say. And the idea is that if something goes sideways and they need to change and they need to adapt to it, that's totally fine. In fact, we'll try to help them with that. And so I think for us, the impact is a, a couple of pieces. One is we are able to make a bet on in an organization that we've determined has a real a greater likelihood of succeeding and we actually play a role in trying to ensure as much as possible that they do succeed right so i think the impact is we serve organizations that and partner with organizations that are able to serve many more people or or grow their impact dramatically so there's many more people that benefit from their work and again and and there's a greater likelihood that that's actually going to happen because we don't just give the money but also our insight right the second piece, I think, is that we actually then are able to find the newest, most interesting idea. Sometimes we find stuff that that's not as mm, well known, right? That that's a new sort of approach that may be a little less time tested, um, and therefore is that more, you know, social innovation is a big buzzword for, in our space because it's people looking for a new solution, a new a new way to do it. And again, by standing side by side with them, we make sure that if they have to adapt, they have to adjust because it's a whole new thing that they do get there. Um, well, so just to kind of pull the thread even yep. farther out. So, I mean, do you do you feel like it puts you in a position to assert that? Um, you know, I mean, pick your example. More uh, kids are getting better educated. Mm-hmm. More families are getting housing. More, yep. you know, children are are yep. being fed as a result of this. Do you yep. actually? Are you able to see the impact yeah. that far through the telescope? Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, so we we obviously track. We have dashboards too, um, and we use a, a, a document called a growth diagnostic. But we also have reporting for the four years that we fund them. We also ask them to give us reports for the three years following the end of our funding, right? And and one of the most critical questions is we used to summarize it as lives touched, number of lives touched, right? And so the idea is how many folks are you serving with your program? But also we say to them, and what are your own metrics, right? They determine their impact. And we say to them, tell us how your impact has grown. Have you managed to increase the, not just serve more students, but increase the number that are graduating high school, right? Have you managed to not just serve more um, uh, more families with with young children, but in fact are more of them becoming kindergarten ready when they reach early yeah. learning and those kinds of things. Um, all the way on up through employment, right, where we have programs which work with young adults and it's like how many more people are getting full-time jobs that allow them to, to, to support their families. And so we've been really pleased to sort of see the results because the organization grow both in budget but again really an impact and with actually measurable results how many organizations are currently in the portfolio so uh you can get a sense of the scale of the yeah work. so it, relatively we're 
in the big scheme of things, we're somewhat small, right? So we've actually, in our 20 years, we've served 60 organizations. So it's, you know, three to five deals, as we call them, per year. Um, the accelerator program really ramped up where we do cohorts of eight. Um, we actually have eight right now in a, in a program um, that stands alongside um, Proximity that's called Unlocked Futures. And it's working with folks who are impacted by the criminal justice system. So that's sort of, and through those programs, we've actually served, I think we're on number 30, uh, or uh, up to 32 um, just in three years. Uh, so we've sort of half of the of our entire track record. It's a much smaller grant, obviously. It's a one-year investment. It's a one-year relationship mm -hmm. in the accelerator. But the idea is all those 32 folks now are that much closer to becoming these full four-year deals. And and the nice thing is that the venture philanthropy field has grown, that there's other organizations that do this kind of work now that make these kinds of yeah. grants. Yeah, I want to come back and talk about uh, like who you've inspired yep. uh, to continue this work. But, Diane, you have politics and policy in your blood still, even though you've been out of it for a little while. I, I remember... I think when Cork first opened, Politico described you as half Politico, half restaurateur. Right. Um, and you were talking earlier about how in the work in the Senate that, it, you know, there's a point at which it kind of grinds you down and you're, you're not seeing the impact right. that you want to have. Although I would suggest that you might have picked an industry that's almost as difficult <laughs> or as, as challenging or wearing. But talk a little bit about, um, you know, how the kind of community building aspect of what you're trying to do at, at Cork has um been a channel for you to have that kind of impact? Well, there's sort of two communities too, right? There's like, for us, we really, um, when we opened Cork, we got all these requests for all this, all these uh, donations and things. And we said, you know, we have to really look at what we want to do here with this, this privilege that we've been given of owning this restaurant that's successful and, and being able to give back to our community. And so we give back by creating a, you know, community space for people in the community we give back by employing people in the community too, which is a really important factor because so many of my, like my local business and so many other local businesses are really employing people who live and work in DC. Half my employees like walk or take the bus to work, you know, so they're very close. Um, but part of it is figuring out, you know, what is important to you to continue your efforts, your political efforts or your um, social justice efforts. And for us, that's sort of centered around food, which is what we do, and um, education. So when we sat down, we were like, okay, there are too many people in our city that are hungry, and there are too many kids in our in our city that aren't getting a great education. So what can we do to help fuel that and build community? And so we really focus more for our like political community efforts on um, those local those local efforts. Um, we have Martha's Table, DC Central Kitchen, our local DCPS schools that are around us. Um, but we've also been pretty involved in political in political causes as a whole. So um, issues like immigration, which mm -hmm. profoundly impact the community of our of our um, staff. You know that obviously. And um, how many staff do you have? How many? Employees? So we have about fifty employees. Okay. Um, and we recently consolidated. We had a restaurant and a market, and we recently consolidated and redid the whole space. And um, so now everybody's under one roof. Thankfully, we didn't have to get rid of anybody in doing that, and nobody left. <laughs> so we're in really good shape. Um, but you know, we've had um, and your that's, workforce is probably pretty diverse. I'm our workforce guessing. is incredibly yeah. diverse, and it's also very long lasting. Um, our manager right now of the restaurant started as a busser 10 years ago when we first opened our restaurant. Um, so we really pride ourselves on building that community within, too, so people feel like they're in a good work environment, they feel supported. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier, like, we offered health care when we opened because we had health care mm -hmm. at our work when we were in the nonprofit world. So we were like, why wouldn't we do that? Um, so there's building that community and, and then being responsive to the political issues that come up for our business. So it's not only things that impact our business, but people, things that impact our staff. So we've been active on immigration. We've been active. We're currently active on the No on 77 initiative, which is on the ballot, which our tipped workers are opposing. Um, well, explain what No on 77 is. So 77 is um, an initiative that's on the ballot um, in June, so just in a month. And um, it seeks to eliminate the tipped credit. So currently, employees who are tipped employees, they make a base wage, and then their tips either have to get them at least to minimum wage or the employer does. By law, we have to at least pay them minimum wage. Our tipped employees make way over minimum wage, so we never actually have to make up the difference. So what this um, initiative is seeking to do is get rid of 
the tipped credit that allows us to use the tips to get to minimum wage um, and just pay all the um, the front of the house or the tipped workers minimum wage a minimum wage base that's that's um, the same as the current minimum wage. So the problem for that is that restaurants work on a very thin margin. We employ a lot of people. So and wait, I'm, I'm, I'm not understanding. Is it just get rid of the get rid of the tipped credit? credit right. Which means the restaurants, the restaurants are responsible for, for restaurants have to pay more base wage. Yeah, right. gotcha. And so that means gotcha. our our payrolls will go up anywhere from 15 to some estimate 30%. And it's not just payroll, obviously. It's the taxes and the insurance and all the stuff that is based on the payroll. Um, and so it's really, for a lot of smaller restaurants, it's really of concern. But I think the tipped workers are mostly concerned because the end game they only see is their wages going down. you know. And so um, the, they don't want that to happen, obviously. A lot of these folks put themselves through school. They raise families. Um, they, it's their second job because their nonprofit job doesn't pay them enough. Um, and so, you know, it's the ends meet for a lot of um, for a lot of employees. And so there's an effort right now by employees and owners of smaller restaurants and bigger restaurants, too. D.C. is really unique. I'm going to only use one number today because I know numbers sort of go, people glaze over. But 96 percent of D.C. restaurants are independently owned and operated. So what this yeah, initiative different. tries to get at is sort of more of the large-scale restaurants, the, you know, not to name names, but the chains, yeah. the national chains yeah. that may be having issues with this um, and not so much the local independently operated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I should have asked you this at the beginning, but paint us a picture of Cork Wine Bar. What do you see when you walk in? What do you feel? What do you want your guests and customers to feel and take away? What's the vibe of the place? And well, include your signature dish. Okay. Which... Well, we are by and large a neighborhood spot. I mean, we live down the street from from our restaurant. We walk there every day. Um, and what we want people to do is feel comfortable and welcomed when they walk in. So um, we used to have a, only a store downstairs, and we redid the space so we would have a tasting bar and a little cafe area and our store, too, because people would come in and buy a sandwich and be like, can't I get a glass of wine and sit down? And we'd be like, nope, sorry, can't. Got to go. <laughs> um, so now they can, which is awesome. And then we moved our whole restaurant upstairs. So the restaurant is a little more of a less casual vibe, but still pretty casual. Um, and downstairs is like, seat yourself, hang out, bring your kids in, have fried chicken, hang out. Um, and our signature just is our avocado bruschetta. That's what you're talking about, right? Is that what you were yeah. hoping for, Deb? So um, I grew up in California, and so did our first chef. And he um, came to me one day and said, remember when you were little and your mom used to smash an avocado on a piece of toast, put some salt on it, and that was lunch? And you loved it, right? I mean, no PB&J. It was just that. And I was like, yeah, that was great. I totally remember that. And I went to school in Santa Barbara, um, which is how I actually originally got to D.C. And I used to... um, Actually, to digress a minute, the reason I came to D.C. for the first time was to work for Bob Carey, as you know. Yeah. And um, I worked, I I took this class on the Vietnam War in, um, in at, at UC Santa, Santa Barbara, Barbara. UC Santa Barbara. Walter yeah. Capps taught it, and Bob, and Bob Carey, Carey came. And, it. Yes, yeah. absolutely. And I worked with a bunch of veterans, and some of them were avocado farmers. So not only did I have the memory from childhood, but these guys would bring me avocados, and I would, I mean, I ate avocados they supplied me through college so he came to me and he said remember that and I said yes and he said well I want to create that same feeling you had with this dish and he like put it out and let me taste it and I was like this is awesome so it's grilled bread slices of avocado uh, roasted pistachios roasted pistachio oil and sea salt and that's it and it is only our house available favorite. at Cork Wine Bar and here in Washington D.C. And your house, so many people, so many people. It's not quite the same. Make you haven't tried mine. No, but I'm just guessing. But you, but what you grew up with, people on the East Coast did not grow up with no. that. So it was very new to everybody here. And you know, you've you've been around for I guess like ten, 10 years. years. Yeah, we started it so about was, nine and a half years ago. That was very. Um, that was a visionary because now everybody has a different version of it. Right. But you have the best one. It's crazy how uh, it has replicated itself on menus throughout it's the funny. country. When I talked to you on the phone, I was arguing, why would I argue with you? You you know how to make it. But I was like, oh, I thought it was um, pista- um, olive oil or avocado, avocado oil. oil. And of course, when I got home, when I opened my, my cabinet. There was my pistachio right. oil, which I have to order from California because I can't find it. We have it at Cork Market. So, there you go. There you go. <laughs> uh, you're both, you're, you're such a great fit for. Add passion and stir because you're both so passionate <laughs> about what you do. Um, now, as somebody who worked in the Senate 
uh, myself, I'm wondering, I have days where, most days where I feel like what I'm doing, what you're doing, Marco, what you're doing, Diane, uh, is having an impact that I wasn't able to have when I worked in government, although I think government is critically important. Right. Um, and then some days I feel just the opposite. I was like, God, you know, this is why I was in government because only government can solve some of these problems. Do you guys go back and forth that way? Are you are you kind of com- completely fulfilled by what you're doing now? And and you're a little bit notorious for actually suing the president, the yeah. current president of the United <laughs> States, which you should tell people about and say where that is. Yeah. Um, well, to answer your first question first, I, I do go back and forth, especially when I see things happening that I used to work on, like voting rights is a huge thing for me and seeing some of the, you know, uh, things that are happening across our country with that. I, I'm like, ah, should I get back in? Like that is, um, but we actually, um, right after the election decided to sue the president for unfair competition. And this so, was because of President Trump's hotel. Hotel in Washington, D.C. that is diverting uh, business away from other hotels, other restaurants, and our own restaurant, which um, used to do, uh, and still does some, but it's definitely decreased, uh, you know, events and things, political events and, and events for foreign governments, foreign embassies, things like that. And, I mean, I think that we are impacted, which is why we brought the lawsuit. I think a lot of restaurants in D.C. are impacted um, and we're a hospitality business. You know, we want to make people feel welcome and wonderful. And it's hard to do something like that because it creates, you know, sort of this drama and this mm-hmm. controversy. But we felt like it was the right thing to do because it's not fair. He shouldn't be making money off of the presidency. He should be running the country. That's his job. His job is not running a corporation as well. And that's why we brought the lawsuit. And, and what happened with it? It's still in court. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it's in federal court right now. Um, they had it removed from D.C. court. And uh, we're, we're, we're in motion practice, okay. which us lawyers know. Uh, as a restaurateur, I might not know, but as a lawyer, I know it takes a little bit of time. So we're still going through that. Uh, and it does, you know, I'd, I'd say most people would probably agree that whether you're for it or against it, this administration has probably blurred the lines more between public and private um, interests than any that I can remember it's so maybe true. going back to the 1800s. And it's a little bit fearful for what comes next, too, right? Like, you know, we hear all this talk about other business owners, corporate owners running for elected office. And, you know, we have to think about what the boundaries we're setting for that are because the job of, as we know from working in the Senate, the job of being a senator, being president, as you know from working in the White House, is more than a full-time job. And it's something where you have to have your sole focus be on that. And if it's important to you, if you're passionate about representing the people of the United States in whatever capacity, then that has to be the thing that you're doing. Uh, where do you come out, Marco, in terms of your own uh, level of personal fulfillment between what you're doing now and government? I've evolved. My thinking is, uh, I don't go back and forth anymore, but it's, it's sort of an interesting path I think I've taken on this. I, as I mentioned, sort of I did all nonprofit work and didn't have any government role uh, or engagement even, you know, for the first, say, 15 years or so of my career. And I really thought that the nonprofit work I was doing was, was sufficient. Um, and then, uh, obviously, I went into the federal government. I really sort of learned firsthand sort of the kind of impact federal government can have in sort of its broad reach. But interestingly, having been inside, um, I also kind of saw some of the limitations of federal government. And it wasn't, you know, in some ways, frankly, to be really honest, I'm like glad of some of those limitations these days, right? Um, (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't do more. And But interestingly, because of kind of maybe the nature of my role in federal government, traveling all in communities, I really began to appreciate far more than I ever had before the role of state and local government. Mm-hmm. And so for me now, I'm, I'm more than happy. I'm, I'm ecstatic with the work that I'm doing um, because I'm, I'm playing a role in the nonprofit sector, but at this catalytic point, right, in this catalytic uh, stage where we are able to sort of go beyond just our individual um, um, uh, service recipients, right, or, or community members, but rather helping multiples of organizations serve folks um, at, a, at a national scale. But so what I do with my own time um, outside of my work is to is to support and engage. And, and, and frankly, it's been really easy because there's so many former Obama alumni who are running for office now at the state and local level all around the country and sort of realizing also, again, how many key decisions that really affect the average person's life in a significant way um, happen at the state and local mm-hmm. level. And so that's sort of where I feel like I'm still able to make 
an impact, you know, indirectly, of course, right, by supporting candidates and, and engaging uh, policymakers. But but that's sort of, for me, where I, I still feel fulfilled in that and don't feel the pull. Yeah. Plus, it's, you know, where I worked, uh, it, there's no option. So <laughs> to go back <laughs> well, and anytime kinda, it, soon. It so. kind of goes to the, it's a different version of the proximity point that yeah, you were making earlier in terms of, you know, state yeah. and local being that close yeah. to, to the people that we try to serve. Yeah. Um, so as, uh, as we start to wrap up, tell us what's next for uh, each of you. You're um, at New Profit going to kind of expand your portfolio, continue to build your portfolio. We're at New Profit yeah. heading in any new directions. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, it's this is a it, it's an interesting time. We're this is our 20th anniversary. Um, in fact, our annual conference is next week. Our gathering of leaders, and we're starting to think really strategically about the next 20 years. One of the big components, one of like sort of the major two pillars, frankly, is this diversity, equity, inclusion question. And so we're really, we're currently in a stage of devising a strategy and in fact inviting funding partners to um, to help us build a significant effort and initiative um, with significant funding behind it to help invest in leaders of color, to help them grow their organizations, but also to help uh, change who is at the decision-making tables in philanthropy and traditional philanthropy. Also to bring in and diversify the informal networks of individual donors, which we know are a key, key piece of, of philanthropy in the nonprofit sector. And then ultimately to going back, bringing it all full circle, to help more nonprofit organizations start and really advance this conversation around diversity and inclusion and equity in their own organizations. Because we feel that's still a key piece that's missing as yeah. well. And just te- tease those apart for me a little bit because it now rolls off all of our tongues, either race equity, inclusion, oh, yeah. diversity, equity, inclusion, yep. DEI. Yep. What, what do we mean by those three different things? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked because it's you're right. And in some ways, without diving deep into it, people sort of just think they're all interchangeable and they're just like repetition of words. The way I describe it is diversity is about who's around the table, right? Diversity is is often about bringing different people together um, who have different perspectives, different life experiences, and and being explicit and deliberate about the fact that whereas there's you can define diversity many, many different ways, a key component in the United States is, is race and gender, um, followed very, very closely by socioeconomic status, right? But so making sure you have people who grew up in different economic backgrounds and bring that to the table, making sure you have people of different races and ethnicities, and of course people of different genders, um, a, a, on your team, right? To, to, pull it, to put it most specifically in an organization. Uh, inclusion, in fact, a, a, a friend and colleague once said, you know, diversity is uh, being invited to the party, right? But inclusion is being asked to dance. Mm-hmm. Inclusion is really about changing the dynamic yeah. of the relationships and people being able to bring their full selves to their to their mm-hmm. work, people being able to raise issues that they're concerned about, people feeling like their perspectives are equally heard and valued, right? So that's the inclusion part, which is not the same as just having different people, mm-hmm. right? Because if you have right. different people but the same folks talk, the same heard. folks decide, that's <laughs> yeah. not True. sufficient, right? And that was the I part. And then equity is about both how and on what you base decisions and where you dedicate time and resources and what impact you have, right? So once you have those, and in my mind, they're somewhat in a way sequential, where once you have diversity and inclusion, you start thinking about, wait, how are we engaging the community we serve? Wait, how are we deciding who we support, who we work with? How are we deciding um, whose perspectives we seek out and bring in? How are we deciding where we do our work? What communities we choose to work in and those kinds of things, right? Because then you start to discover like, there are, pl- and, and uh, bringing it back again, you know, uh, in, in food, there's a very, very obvious piece that until people mapped it, no one noticed, is that you have entire food deserts in communities, right? right. You have communities and areas where there's just restaurants and supermarkets and groceries and fresh fruit and local and like all of that movement just booming. And then, you know, a mile away, yeah. you have a place where folks cannot get fresh fruit at all, right? And that's an equity question. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. That's sort of in my mind equity about decisions about where things, yeah. how things happen and, and where resources go. Yeah, what were you gonna ask? I just had a question around when you're describing uh, the differences. Is there a is there an organization you can think of that is just like hitting out of the ballpark wow. across all of those? I, I'd hesitate. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think most I of us still have some work to do there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of folks of delving into it and doing yeah. really great work on the journey, and in different ways, they're doing really great. I don't know if there's one group that is like the poster child that everyone should follow, mm-hmm. because in mm-hmm. some ways, also too, it's 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 hard to it plays out in different ways in different organizations. And what about what about your organization? We're I, I'm pretty proud of the work we've done. We've been on I would call it a three year journey now in DEI. Our staff is much more diverse than it ever was, mm-hmm. and and case in point um, of how this is not 
not all the same thing. It's diverse at different levels, mm -hmm. right? It's not just diverse at the entry level, but mm -hmm. all the way on up mm -hmm. through leadership. Um, we're very inclusive. We've, we've done a lot of work. There's still work to do, but creating a more inclusive yeah. culture at the work. And then again, we've started to really think about who we fund and what decisions, mm -hmm. on what decisions we base our funding um, and on you know, even what our networks are from which to, to identify potential grantees and so on. So I think we're doing really well. Again, we're, I don't think we've got it down perfectly either. I'm, I'd be skeptical of anyone who says they've fixed it, right? Because it's, it's, ultimately, for better or worse, you know, we're still operating in America where there's still just a lot of system stuff. There's a lot of historical stuff that we still have to work yeah. through. Yeah. Um, Diane, what's next for Court Weinberg? Well, we're also celebrating anniversary. We had 10 years this year. Um, and when did you relocate? How recently was that? November. No, so, okay, so it's very recent. Very recent. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and so far, so good. So, you know, my my years ahead are just folk well we're looking at doing a new project next year so we're excited about that something very different than cork um so stay tuned for same neighborhood but uh not same neighborhood not but same neighborhood. close by but a restaurant a restaurant yeah so um hopefully we'll have some more information from that for okay. about that and not in the not too distant future um but you know i think my my work is just continuing to support the community so it's the community of my staff and our uh, the folks who are at Cork working and what we can do to to grow them and encourage them and and you know keep people happy and and uh, feeling good about where they work and what they do um, and being a good community member where we're supporting community whether it's through local uh, nonprofits that are doing work in the community like Martha's table which is right up the street from us or or um, Garrison Elementary, which is right down the street from us, you know, right. um, things we can do just as a local business to help make the community stronger. And you and more just vibrant. supported Taste of the Nation. Yeah, you yeah, guys yeah. Just there. absolutely. Yeah. I love that. That's Thank like my that. favorite event. Thank you. Because um, we just get to serve wine and people are so happy. Um, and then, you know, we're pretty privileged to be able to support the things that we care about. So whether that's lending our voice to political work that we um, feel helps our our community of the restaurant community or just sort of the larger progressive issues that we care about. You know, I mentioned immigration before. Um, that is, you know, we're all immigrants, so that's a profound, uh, profoundly important issue to me. And so that's something that, you know, I'll work on regardless. And that's, you know, a little bit broader of a scope, but something that is, I think, is impactful to the community that I work with. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, obviously so many more. And if you win your lawsuit against the president and the Trump Hotel, you'll probably be the most powerful woman in the country. So, <laughs> uh, so you may be doing a lot of other things uh, as well. I would we'll welcome say. that opportunity, we'll let see. me say. Uh, and last question, because we got to go. Uh, if we only have time and money for one glass of wine at Cork Wine Bar, what should it be? Oh, uh, rosé. Yeah? Rosé right now. I mean, it's just hitting. It's beautiful. We're actually starting to make our own wine at Cork Wine Bar, so we're Your making a rosé um, that we're going to start having probably in uh, 2019. Sure. It's the season for rosé, beautiful wines, so diverse. I'm coming so in next week. we got to come in. No, I'm we coming in next week. We have a whole wall of Are you there a lot? Are and you there, there all, all the, time? the time? I'm coming in next week. No, I really <laughs> we'll am. Excellent. Are you taking your brother? Uh, I'll take you in Are you taking Marco? Uh, we can all go. You Why can not? come on in. I really, I really want to stop in. I was looking yeah, at the please. menu the other day and I loved it. It'd be better than than a WeWork space, don't you think? Yes. You can work there. All right, we're all coming in. So. Diane Gross from Cork Wine Bar, thank you so much thank for you. being on Add Passion and Stir. And Marco Davis, partner at New Profit, amazing work that you're both doing in the community and pioneering work in venture philanthropy. Marco, so thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And Debbie Shore, as always. Thanks. Love having you here. It's fun. Thank I'm you. Billy Shore. This is Add Passion and Stir. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stirs, the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.